though we have had nine lessons that have taught the Christmas gospel, there is a tenth lesson this morning, and it's what I'm going to preach on. It is Psalm 8. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest, Latin. Did you notice how many times in the songs that we sang, glory was mentioned? How many times in the scripture lessons the word glory came up? The events that we cobble together and use to form our seasonal worship really is all about glory. Angels appear and they, quote, sing. They don't, really. Actually, if you go through the accounts of the angels, you won't find the scripture says they're singing anywhere. But in our hymns and carols, we say they do. The reason why we say they do is because, quite frankly, we can't picture them not. Because these words are so glorious, they are so wonderful, they are beyond what we can comprehend, them angels have to be singing, even though they're not. It's glorious. Ruling magi priests, but also government officials, come with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They bow before this child. They worship the child. It's hard to picture anything more glorious than that. Shepherds, whose livelihood depend upon the sheep and who will be cut away from their livelihood if anything happens to the sheep on a uh, night like any night, but a winter night, leave their flocks right where they are because angels have told them something greater than their livelihood has arrived, and they all leave the flocks, and they go to see what has been said. It is so glorious, they can't not. Christmas is all about glory. What does the term glory mean? Well, uh, just kind of cobbling together a definition, I wrote, that which astounds and captivates with fascination, that which attracts our adoration and respect in an overpowering way, that which fills the onlookers with joy inexpressible. 
That's glory. I'm drawing from a couple different sources, but uh, glory is that overwhelming feeling when you see something so good and so beyond what you can possibly imagine, something attractive in its overwhelming goodness that you just are awe-inspired. That's true glory. The world uses the term for things that aren't glorious, but if you're looking for a biblical definition, that's the definition. Psalm 8 is a psalm of glory par excellence. The first verse is, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who has set your glory above the heavens. There's an emphasis on joy here, too. You notice that glory has joy woven into it. In the Hebrew, the introductory material says this is to be performed on the instrument of gath. We're not really sure what the instrument of gath was, but it seems to have been a particularly joyful-sounding kind of instrument, and it was reserved for that. In the Septuagint translation, and there are some sizable changes between the introductory material in Hebrew and the introductory material in Greek, but in the introductory material in the Septuagint, we're told this psalm is, quote, for the wine vats, which, if you're not Wesleyan, suggests something very joyful. Uh, you sing this when you're trampling out the grapes to make joyful wine. It is a psalm about the Lord, our governor. I know in English we sing, O Lord, O Lord, how excellent is your name. But the two words aren't the same in Hebrew. One is God's name, O Yahweh, O Jehovah. And the other one is ruler or king or governor. The Coverdell translation says governor. Other modern translations say ruler. Um, God is the great king from the very beginning of this psalm, and that is glorious. His name is higher, is more glorious than anything earth can actually compare to it. Your glory is above the heavens, says the psalmist, and not only is this glory above the heavens, but God himself has put it there. You have lifted your glory above the heavens. That has been something you have wanted to do, and you have succeeded at that. You are more glorious than anything the world has to offer, and it was your purpose that that happened. Many have uh, suggested that since God is so interested in his own glory, doesn't that make God very selfish? Because if I were to set my glory above the heavens, you would think there is a very pompous man. And you would be right if I were to do that. But that is not true when it comes to God. God and man may have some shareable, that is, communicable attributes, but the glory of God is not one of them. The glory of God is something totally different than anything man can have, and it is not selfish in the least for God to care about his glory, to lift his glory up. God is the source of all life, the source of all existence. He is your source for life and existence. Your next heartbeat is willed by God if you're going to have it. 
your existence was willed by him. Uh, you are totally dependent upon his action to continue to exist. And he does that. And it isn't any sort of overstatement on God's part at all to say, I am quite glorious. In fact, the glory of God is ultimately the best thing for man. Now, many of you may be thinking, he sounds a lot like John Piper, and you'd be absolutely right. I'm not generally a fan of Piper, but on this particular thing, he gets it very right. God's glory is our highest good, and God has set his glory above the heavens. And the psalmist says, this is absolutely excellent. It is wonderful that, that your name is so glorious. Your name is your reputation, the experience of your presence. You are there on earth to be known. Men can know you. You are more glorious than anything at all, and this is excellent. And just in case you don't realize how important the glory of God is, the psalmist begins and ends with the exact same verse. Verse 9 is word for word, verse 1. O Lord, our ruler, our king, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This psalm, like the season of Christmas, is all about the glory of God. But it is not just the glory of God that this psalm is about. It's also about human beings. And we encounter the first reference to human beings in verse 2. Uh, it's not the human beings you would have expected, maybe, if it's a psalm about God's glory, because it's about little bitty children and infants and babies that are nursing. And it reads... Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. One of the things that atheists will tell you the moment you meet them, because, you know, they only have like 12 things they say and they say them over and over again, is now you know that babies are born atheists. They have to learn theism. No baby is actually born with a knowledge of God. You know, in practice, it does not look that way. In practice, infants and little children seem intuitively kind of hardwired to worship God and to have a sense of the divine that older people kind of lose as they grow up and grow hardened and grow cynical uh, just watch the little kids in your life. You'll see what I'm talking about. There's just an innate worship of God. And the psalmist points to that and he says, God will ordain strength, or as the Greek, the Septuagint puts it, will ordain praise. And the Septuagint isn't wrong because this is coming out of the glory of God in verse 1. He's been talking about God's glory, and now he turns to little children and how little children partake in that. They praise God. They have strength in their praise. The, the praise of the little children is powerful, not because they have a tendency to atheism, but because older, harder, bitter, broken, crabby, 
evil older people do. There are enemies and there are avengers who don't like God. And uh, those terms are just what they sound like. There are people out there who stomp their feet and say, I refuse to believe God exists and I want you to know I hate him. And there are people who even see themselves as so opposed to God, they are avengers against him. I mean, that's, that's what the term is saying. There are people whose mission in life is to bring down the kingdom of God, to harm anything God's doing. Uh, they exist, and God ordains strength. He ordains praise from the mouth of little children, infants, to shatter the enemy and the avenger. He doesn't raise up knights in shining armor, men muscle-bound, strong of arm. You'd think he would, but that's not in Psalm 8. What's in Psalm 8 is God raises up little bitty babies to say, you're an idiot. God is wonderful. And that is strength, and that is praise. He's showing how little children praise God, and moving from there with the theme of glory still in mind, he moves to a very surprising place. He even talks about the glory of man. Now, uh, don't fear. I'm still a Calvinist. I have a truly, truly low view of humanity. But the truth is, the Bible says there's a glory to humanity. It is a derived glory. It is not anywhere near the glory of God. The glory of God is above the heavens. But it is derived from God. Man is made in the image of God. Genesis tells us that twice. And deriving glory from God, mankind has a certain glory. And in fact, it is a glory so high, it's really very up there in the highest categories. There's only a few categories higher. There's God, and there's the angels. But man... Well, actually, in the psalm, he's pretty glorious. Listen to how the psalm refers to man. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? I can really jive with that. You look at the universe and how big it is, and uh, that's glorious, but the psalmist says, no, actually, man's glory is under the angels. Uh, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, that pass through the paths of the sea. That's pretty glorious. Now, uh, if you read English Bibles, you'll notice that there is a, there's a verse here that will alternate a word. Uh, some will say, you have made him a little lower than the angels. Some will say, you have made him a little lower than the gods, or God. You may wonder why that is. Well, the answer is... In the Hebrew, the term is Elohim, and it means the gods. 
in the Septuagint, the word is angelos, which means angel. And again, the Greek translators are not wrong. The Elohim are the, it's a term that is often used for the gods that the nations worship, the conglomeration of the pagan gods. But who are the Elohim? Who are these gods that are worshipped by men that aren't in covenant with the true God? Well, biblically speaking, they're fallen angels. They are demons. They were angels. They are the Elohim, the Hebrew does say, but they are not God. But they're still pretty glorious. If you go to the New Testament, you'll see in the book of Jude that the writer there says, you know, even God's angels who aren't fallen, they don't bring a railing ac accusation against the devil because that would be improper. He is glorious, and they say, the Lord rebuke you. They don't, they don't talk down to the devil because of his glory. Um, they were angels. They are now fallen gods. Um, but man is just slightly under that in glory. And the dominion mandate is mentioned here. And you'll notice the term dominion is here. He is referring us back to uh, what God said in Genesis in chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image, the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves along the ground. You can hear those words in Psalm 8. The psalmist is effectively quoting them. Man is glorious because man has been given dominion. He is to rule over the earth. And the psalmist says this very victoriously. He says it like that's happening. It's a glorious song. I mean, you're not going to sing something minor key while you're stomping out the grapes for the wine. But that does present a little bit of a theological problem. Because the psalm is talking about something that we only see bits and pieces of in life. We see it a little bit, but not much. When the writer of Hebrews took up this psalm and quotes from it and teaches from it, he says this. For that in he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. The writer to Hebrews is simply expressing something that anybody singing Psalm 8 would have to really kind of think. Man is glorious, derives his glory from God because of the dominion mandate, he is over everything except in this fallen world. That's not the way things are working. There's all kinds of things that man can't be in dominion over at the moment. Man fails in many of his attempts to take dominion. When he does take dominion, he doesn't really take it in God's way, so it's not that glorious. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, when we read this psalm, we don't see what it's talking about. And that should give you just a little pause. 
as it did him. But that is not where he left things. You see, Christmas is glorious because it's about Jesus. Actually, everything in creation is glorious in that it relates to Jesus. The writer to Hebrews in teaching on the psalm, after he says, we do not yet see all things but under him, then says, but we do see Jesus. Listen to his words in context. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Just like Psalm 8, the concept of glory is on the mind of the writer of Hebrews. And he is contemplating where can true glory be found. And if you go through the book of Hebrews, you will find again and again, the writer to Hebrews says, this was kind of glorious, but it doesn't compare to the glory of Jesus. This was kind of glorious, but it doesn't compare to the glory of Jesus. And that's exactly what he's doing now. He is pointing us beyond this world which is in subjection at the moment to angels. But you'll notice that the writer to Hebrews doesn't exactly say which side these angels are on that he's talking about. It's actually kind of a mashup at the moment. God didn't plan to subject the world to angels. He planned to give it to men. Men don't really have it very well at the moment. But God has put into this mess something which testifies that when God has an intention, God's intention ends up standing. In the first two chapters of Genesis, you read about God's intention. I intend for humanity to have dominion over the earth and to be my under shepherds. They are to care for creation under me. They are to give glory to me in how they live on earth. They are to walk with me in the cool of the day in the garden. This is my intention. This is what I plan. Does the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God fail in his intentions? The answer is no. When God declares an intention, it's what's going to be. And yet we don't see it now, says the writer to Hebrews, but the intention stands, and if you don't believe me, let me show you ground zero of that intention coming to be. It is Jesus the Christ. Everything about creation is about Christ. Creation was made so that the covenant between the Father and Son could have a place to play out, 
on Christmas morning, that glorious morning that is all about glory, is all about glory because the Son was born. The Son is the Savior. The Son is the Redeemer. He is the only hope of the world, but he is the absolute hope of the world. And from him, the intention of God is going to spread. He comes and he tastes death for everyone. He is the one that crushes the serpent's head. Why is death in the world? It's because of the curse on what the serpent did. The one who was to come was going to crush the serpent's head, though he would be wounded. Welcome to Jesus the Christ. We don't see the glory of man now. See, I told you as a Calvinist. But we see Jesus, and this is glorious. <clears throat> the way other New Testament passages put it, say James chapter 1, is this. Of his own will, he brought us forth, us forth by the word of truth, that we might be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Uh, the first fruit of the first fruit was Jesus. The first bud to bloom, the first sign of the new day, the, the first sign of everything that's coming, it's him. And then we follow in that train. We live because Christ lives. The new dawn is beginning to shine and that is glory psalm 8 would be a lie without jesus psalm 8 would be an absolute affrontery to truth because as the writer of the hebrew says we don't see this glory of man i mean the glory of god sure you can't miss that even in the fallen world but the glory of man i don't see it well, it's Christmas Day, and the glory of what God intended can be seen in Jesus the Christ, and he is the first fruit of the first fruit. He is the promise of what is going to happen, and we on the Lord's Day are called to praise him. We are called to praise him just like those little children, because we are little children before him. There's a reason why the scriptures constantly remind us that the visible church in the Old Testament was called the children of Israel, and it's not just because they always complain like children. We are, before God, children and infants, but God has ordained that we praise him, and that praise is power. We have come together to join in the glory of the message of Christmas, to join in the glory of God, which is in Jesus, we have come today to praise the one born at Bethlehem, and Psalm 8 tells us that praise is strength. There are avengers and enemies who don't like this season and will literally do anything they can to obscure this season. I'm not for extra holy days, as you know, but I have no problem with a liturgical calendar and one that focuses on emphases, and I have no problem with focusing on the birth of Jesus Christ in December. 
it is a remarkable season where all the world is kind of forced to think about the Christ, except there are those out there who want to make sure you don't. Have you ever wondered why Christmas is treated the way it is and say not Arbor Day? I mean, can you imagine Charles Schultz making the Arbor Day holiday special and Linus has to get up and remind everybody that the day is about trees because the holiday has been so obscured that nobody remembers it's about trees. I mean, nobody does that to Arbor Day, right? Um, why is that? Well, it's because there's enemies and Avengers who don't want to hear the praise of the one born of Bethlehem. That is violence to their kingdom. That is God overcoming the enemy and the Avenger, and they don't want that, so they obscure it as best they can, but still the church comes together in this season. They join together in some of the most theologically orthodox music the church possesses. They praise the one at Bethlehem, and it is strength and power, and the world is reminded that the purposes of God are going to stand because we see them in Jesus Christ. Now, you may ask yourself, um, how powerful is that praise? In the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew, something called the Peshitta, uh, this is how it was translated into Aramaic. Out of the mouth of young men and infants, you have established your glory because of your enemies that you might destroy the enemy and the avenger. The Hebrew says silence, but, you know, when you silence the enemy's guns, it means you blew them up. And the Aramaic takes it as these little children are going to praise God and their praise is going to be so powerful that it literally blows up the enemy and the avenger. It drives them from the battlefield. It conquers the earth. God has ordained this to be his power. And we are the children of God, and we are called to praise him. And our praise will, according to the Aramaic, destroy the enemy and the avenger. There is nothing more powerful, spiritually speaking, for you to do than to give praise and glory to God, specifically through Jesus Christ. That is the weapons of our warfare. That is what puts demons to flight. Thanks be to God that such weapons are in our hands, that we have the promise that we have them, because while we do not see the glory of man, nevertheless we are assured of our weapons and all other blessings, because now we see Jesus, who has tasted death for everyone.